0: Greetings, my name's Andrew Sumner. My grandfather, Pop Smythe, bought me my first comic book in Liverpool, England, when I was three years old. And I spent the next 50 years hurtling around the pop culture kaleidoscope, first as a fan, and then as a journalist, editor, publisher and presenter. Along the way, I met a bunch of interesting people who will be joining me here. Creators, performers, professionals and public servants. We live in divisive, fractured times, but art and popular culture connect people from all viewpoints and from all walks of life. I'm often struck by the passions people enjoy, that they can set aside their differences for and agree on, whatever those passions are, whether I share them or not. And that spark, that moment of instinctive, connective agreement, that's what I call
1: a hard agree. Hey there, Andrew, how are you? I'm good, Tyler. How are you, mate? Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, good to see you again.
0: Uh, Good to see you again, brother. Thanks so much for doing this, mate.
1: Uh, Yeah, my pleasure. Sound okay? Do you want me on headphones?
0: Oh, no, the sound's perfect. Yeah, don't need the headphones. You're absolutely spot on. Oh, actually, you've just frozen. Oh, no, you're back now. you froze for a second there, but you're okay. Can you you hear me okay? My normal (laughs)
1: stature. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) How's your week been, mate? It's, It's hectic, but things are good. A lot, yeah. there's always a lot happening here. So yeah, it's, it's all exciting, but coming down to the wire on a couple of projects right now. So, you know, it's the 11th hour.
0: I mean, as, as familiar with your resume as I am, the thing about you that it always impresses me, mate, is how hardworking and productive you are. I mean, you've just amassed such a massive amount of credits in a relatively short space of time. I don't know I've quite seen anything like it with regard to somebody who composes in your space.
1: Well, yeah, I probably, <laughs> in the, instead of having an addiction for, for you know, drugs or the whatever, <laughs> I, I probably take it out in my work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think most of us who, uh, who, you know, live a life similar to me have, yeah, you know, yeah. we're we're all trying to to focus our energies uh, that would otherwise defeat us into yeah. our. Yeah. Our work into something constructive and, and something that we we love and and excites us. So I definitely get a rush off of out of everything I'm working on, whether it is you know film or TV collaboration or you know right now we're at the eleventh uh, hour on the Starcrawler record, and it's so exciting to really hear it uh, taking shape right now. And so uh, that's on the agenda. How long have yeah. you been
0: working? How long have you been working on that for, mate?
1: Uh, A couple of months to see what I'm losing track of time. I mean, the conversation about the record has gone on for months and obviously we did good time girl together for the dark Knight's death metal soundtrack. And when we recorded that, it was probably over a year ago, because I remember we were in masks in the studio, everybody a little bit, you know, on, you know, let's just say everyone was a little bit wary, you know, I mean, we just had no idea, but we, we all uh, trusted in the science available to us and everyone was unscathed. But anyway, <laughs> that experience was so great. It, it led to us wanting to make their next full record together. And, and it's really cool. And, and. They've shifted their their songwriting just a little bit, and that's that's exciting too to see you know a young artist like that uh, growing into their next phase. So it's fun to be part of it.
0: Uh, it must be it must be so rewarding to be part of those journeys.
1: Yeah, well, they're legit, man. Yeah. If if anyone's gonna go see a young rock band, there's I mean, Starcrawler to me is is one of the absolute best you know young bands out there so i think this will be a a really great beginning to uh uh, a good stretch for these guys
0: hey man I, i can't wait and this is as good a time as any for me to go welcome to our degree my name is andrew sumner and i'm here with my special guest musician producer composer creator tyler bates thanks for joining us mate i really appreciate it
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. You know, it, again, you know, things are, are kind of interesting and popping right now. So yeah. <laughs> I'll try and keep my focus. But, you know, that's a problem for me. You know, sometimes I do, well, I do interviews and I'm in my studio and, and I have to be sure not to have a session open in this computer next to me yeah. because I'll literally... You know, it's probably the O C D in my mind, you know, I'll see something that needs to be edited or something like that. Yeah. And I'll start doing it, I'll forget what the hell I'm talking about. So I could be a lousy interview sometimes, but it just depends how busy I am. No,
0: you know? I, I've got it, brother. I remember when I was growing up in Liverpool, one of the things I used to do is learn how to play. The the cornet, right? And I used to have, and I was a dreadful cornet player, but I was a very good student. Yeah. And and so my I remember once having a my my trump, my cornet teacher over, and he got distracted by something for a second. He had to go and speak to my mum and dad or something. So I put the cornet down, went over to my homework and carried on with my homework while he was out the room. When he came back in, he went fucking ballistic because I was so out of the moment of the music and into like competing in my writing assignment. Well, of course, that's what I became as a journalist, right? You know, and I, I'm a journalist. I was a music journalist, as you know, I love music, but I was, a I was a lousy musician, but he just went fucking nuts because for him, that pro- my priority was all the way around. So that concept of being, you know, interrupted by the things that your mind is tuned into, I totally get it, mate.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you were facing... You were up against all odds, too, with the Coronet. Just think of how many Coronet players actually become listenable. Yeah, that's <laughs> right.
0: Oh, mate, it's I mean,
1: so true. <laughs> people, People jump into marriage, no problem, you know. And it's already a losing that, but man, well, I'm going to play yeah. cornet. Yeah, you know that's about a four percent chance of ever becoming.
0: <laughs> mate, it's <proficient>. so true. I <laughs> know it, it is so true. Now, speaking of musical beginnings, there's my, that was my miserable musical beginning. But mate, when did you when did you first get the sense within yourself? that music was going to be your overriding, you know, passion and kind of North Star in life?
1: Honestly, it just always was. I had no childhood fantasies of being an astronaut. I love sports, but I never saw myself as as a professional athlete, even though, um, again, I love sports. I played sports a lot in my life. But music has just been a constant since I can remember. And I was always so taken with all aspects of music, even as a a little kid. You know, my mother listened to so much music because she'd buy 10 records a week. So while she was a T-shirt and jeans gal, she had six stereo and every possible type media player you could have back in, in the day when I was a kid. So she had a reel to reel. She had cassettes, eight tracks, anything they made, you know, and a really nice turntable. So, yeah, our house was like a museum of music in her room you know there was always a i don't know i say by the time she passed away when i was 19 yeah. she had nearly fifteen thousand records i would guess it was an insane amount i wish at the time i could have kept her problems yeah. but it was an emergency sitch so you know we didn't have all the options in front of us but at any rate i remember the earliest memory i have is is being on our living room floor reading the liner notes to frank zappa's hot rats and I just thought, wow, this is so weird that people would make music like this and then they would press it into an album and make this artwork, you know, because I think on that record, there's like six songs and they're all super long. And I really loved that. And, you know, in that there's a lot of instrumental music, which um, I found to be quite fascinating and straight. I mean, these are very odd references from the beginning, you know, because for yeah. me... It, it wasn't necessarily like a John Williams score that, that I started thinking about early, but m- musicals, like the soundtracks to them made me see this story through the music, you know, yeah. understand the story through the music and then connecting, you know, soundtracks like hair and Jesus Christ. Superstar yeah, to, to or bands I listened to, especially early on, like, like Frank Zappa, like yes, like John Coltrane and then the type pop music I listened to was like Stevie Wonder and Sly and the Family Stone and of course all the Beatles. Yeah, so the the writing was really natural but complex when you really break it down. Now it took me years before I ever got into the the place where I had the ability to analyze it from a more technical perspective. Yeah. But I always really felt that and i felt the passion and i felt the effortlessness and and the way the artists were expressing their music even though like sly and the family stone is so vibrant and yeah and beautiful it's still so natural you know and that was something that really resonated with me i was never a real fan of somebody who, who looked like they were struggling when they performed with their instrument and that that impacted me greatly and then I played I, I played recorder and then, then I got into uh, <laughs> got into my first grade school band on alto sax, which yeah. I loved and I wish right. I had I wish I'd maintained the sax and and I think I'm I'm definitely gonna pick up a sax this summer and start again and I just met a guy who's who's offering to to coach me up a little bit so oh,
0: wonderful mate you've got to do that yeah, yeah. you've got to
1: do it. So actually I was I was really decent it's just the guitar kind of spoiled my interest in the sax. Yeah. So I I thought, okay, well, the sax is kind of uh, going out of style and, you know, guitars are cool as hell. I just always will be. Yeah, I always related to it. From the minute I literally touched the guitar for the first time, I was just completely taken by it. And and that was a sea change or a pivotal moment in my life. So from there, yeah, I mean, I just never thought of what I was going to do with my life other than music. I didn't know exactly what. You know, so I I eventually, you know, I just started writing songs, got into my first real band when I was 17. And I never stopped, you know, and the film composition aspect of my life really picked up when I moved back to California because I'm originally from here. So, So
0: you were born in California and you grew up in Chicago, right?
1: Is that right? Yeah, yeah. We moved there like when I was 10 or something. Yeah. So
0: before we get on to that, on that, on that, the building blocks to your, to mute, to your film career, are cheers. there any, are there any, cheers, mate. All the best to you. Cheers. Yeah, this, any... is
1: morning. this is morning, so it's straight coffee, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> hey,
0: I wouldn't know. It's an opaque glass. You can have whatever you want in there, mate.
1: <laughs> I work to do.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I understand it. I believe you'd So did you, did you ever, you mentioned the sax. Did you ever spend much time at the Green Mill?
1: No, I was no. too young, too young. Yeah. And then once, once I got into my bands it
0: you were in a whole different scene. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. I was in a different scene, but I did really in, in Chicago, I definitely frequented. A, a. I did end up frequenting a lot of the jazz and blues clubs, you know, before I came back to LA. And that was transformative too. I remember going with my aunt to Kingston Mines one night and Kingston Mines is not a very large club, but is very famous in Chicago. And the heavy, heavyweights would play there any night of the week. Openers were great. You know, nobody played that place. that wasn't something, but I remember Carlos Johnson performing one night and, I was just completely blown away. He's like old school blues where he'll yeah. get the room worked up yeah. and then he'll just bring everything down to such a, a, a almost near silent sound. I mean, you could hear a whisper in there. So you, everybody in the audience was dead silence, just brought it down and just gave everyone this incredible moment. And then he's just a sick player. So I used to have experiences like that. And then I would ask that person if I could just have one session with them. Yeah. You know, so I had the opportunity to sit down with him. And that's oh, really, how I, that's how I got my, you know, the majority of my guitar education. I did, t- I did uh, study for a couple months with a guy on the South side of Chicago. Cause when I joined my band at 17, those guys had studied with the same guy. So I thought, all right, I'll go check it out. But after about three months, his name is Glenn Drini. And unfortunately Glenn passed away a couple of years ago, but he and I stayed in touch throughout all the years. And after three months, he's like, Tyler, forget everything that we we've done in the last three months. I don't want to screw up your style. He says, you have a whole thing going and I don't want to disrupt that with too much of this formal educational stuff. Now I had uh, a bit of a music theory background, just being in bands and, and obviously needing to understand how music works, but it was really interesting because I'm always willing to break all the rules musically. I really don't care as long as it feels right and it sounds good. I'm into it. So he didn't want to, he didn't want to compromise that aspect of my guitar playing, which was really cool. And it also gave me a license to, to really create from my own mind without really giving a shit what anyone thinks. Yeah. And, you know, of course we do. And, in the commissioned art world, you know, cause we have to please our, our, our masters, but you know, there's a greater objective in mind. It's not about, you know, when you're working on film and TV, it's not about us, you know, yeah. we are about that. So it's about the um,
0: collaboration.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's about the big picture. You know, we're, we're trying to provide a, a component of the entertainment that is being created and, and we have to keep that into perspective. You know, it's, it oftentimes gets twisted out of perspective of, Yeah. You know, at the end of it, after you've worked with, you know, ten people giving you their input and and whatnot, you know, sometimes composers like to, you know, shine a light on themselves for yeah or their genius, but, but while you've got it to
0: is, subjugate yourself to the greater cause, I guess, to the artistic endeavor.
1: Yeah, your your work your work speaks for itself, good or bad, and I, yeah. I have both out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have, I have <laughs> some. I have some orphans that I am not really proud of. But, you know, that happens, you know, early on in my career when I was just learning. I, I mean, I never I never encountered a, a, another human who had scored a film until I completed my 18th movie. So, wow, amazing. Uh, you know, the whole tech side of it, I was kind of learning from, you know, musicians who didn't do that job and then directors and editors and producers who were really giving me a greater understanding of their uh, approach and their perspective on storytelling and and the point of music in the context of film. And so, you know, the that really helped me immensely, but it took me quite a while until I really accepted being myself in, in that forum, because I never aspired to be a film composer. I'm grateful for the fact that that aspect of my musical career has developed into something but because I wasn't really planning on it until it landed in my lap I really was in school for quite a while working with the directors and producers and it wasn't until maybe my my 15th score I did one that I I didn't feel required an apology so you know but again you know I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have had that experience on low-budget films and and yeah to have learned quite a bit and even still many of those people that I worked with back then have have gone on to invite me onto other projects with them so for that I'm grateful Tyler what
0: what was it that opened the door for you in the first place and in terms of in terms of soundtracks composing soundtracks yeah so all those all those early movies that you did how did you get into that space from where you were
1: well, it was definitely a start stop because when I, I first did it, I was not even thinking about doing it. I was kind of doing a favor for my brother, who was uh, like a line producer on a on a Cassian Elway's movie. Yeah. And I think Cassian was directing this movie and uh, no, Cassian was producing it. That's right. It was it was some, I don't know, some schlocky film, but. You know, they, they had like $300 and they needed a bunch of rock cues. And I was actually in Chicago recording a guitar record that nobody should ever listen to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, my friend and I made this guitar record. We, we used to do whatever we had to do to stay alive. So we'd do guitar yeah. clinics and all that, that stuff, you know, that, you know, whatever. So, yeah, Cassian, you know, called and said he wanted me to do this. I told him I've never scored anything before. So they gave me timings. And just said they wanted some rock music, sort of in this style. And, and we were there recording that day, full band. So I just wrote out some charts and we recorded it. And that was it. And I wish it was that simple when scoring a movie. But, you know, obviously that movie it didn't require the sophisticated approach and intellect that some of the other movies I've worked on actually yeah. do, but it was an entry into it. And now I had no picture then, you know, all I was working from was timing notes. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. I had to get That's from interesting. Here to here in this many seconds, here to here in this many seconds. Here's what happens. But I didn't see the picture because back then, you know, there was no internet, there was no film yeah. to share, you know.
0: We're talking around about sort of early 90s at this point, 93 ish kind it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it was, you know, uh, it was an interesting experiment. But, you know, I lived in the studio. So that was the thing that the, the one aspect that really got me through the early days. And then once I, I realized that the way I will have the greatest success in film and TV is to just be myself as a musician and an artist, and then, you know, increase the tools in my toolbox, so to speak, yeah. as I go, but, you know, don't abandon what I'm actually very good at and i felt a need to put on a different hat when i was uh, starting out and i just didn't really understand that i just needed to make music that i felt was really good music and you know at and i some guess point, there's
0: some parallels happening. there's some parallels to your your teacher not tramping on your spirit and then talking and then basically realizing in the course of your creation it's about accessing your spirit and being true to yourself and that's what that is actually what's the most creatively satisfying right
1: Mm-hmm. and And then because I used to pretty i wrote all the music for all the songs that my band pretty much would do and produce the recordings and you know book the shows and promoted them and all that stuff, I think that acumen really helped me establish process because yeah. the, the only way you can be successful is, is a film composer or television composer is to establish a process that's healthy and productive for everyone involved creatively so i can't expect anyone in general who comes into my studio to be able to speak in musical terms with me or to understand them so what's important is creating a process that satisfies everyone and meets their tempo whatever it is that they're looking for to engage them and, and bring a sense of confidence to our process so it's different for everyone um But I find that, you know, really engaging people one-on-one, oftentimes, you know, pre-COVID when I'd have clients in my studio, I would generally create a piece of music while they're here or play something to them to reflect a point they've made in a conversation regarding the the property we're working on. Because usually those first meetings are prior to when I've begun actually working on the property. So, you know, I just tried to always be very conversational with people in music. And that's then spilled over into how I approach uh, producing records or writing songs with artists. Yeah. You know, we just break it down to us conversation. What do we think is cool? What do we love? And, and kind of, you know, eliminating all the extraneous energies that are not necessary or even the consideration of whether or not people will like, what we're doing you know if i'm working with an artist they're you know i have a lot of respect for them they they know who they are and what they're doing too so between the two of us or three of us we tend to to figure out pretty well what what we love you know we can't control everyone else so that
0: that strikes me as, as a really quite a pure and authentic way to approach it. And I think the fact that you're freeing yourself from not thinking in terms of how will this be received, but focusing on the the creative signaling, the creative messaging from the space you've created. I I think I'm sure that's why you've you've become so successful in, in this space, because that almost Zen like approach of of interpolating the conversation into a musical piece. I've not heard anybody say that before, but it makes complete sense to me. Because what you're doing is magnifying, augmenting, and underlining storytelling via music, right? So that's part of what your process has got to be. The, the, I, it seems to me that that is a microcosm. I no doubt you've refined this over time, but that's a microcosm of what you're doing on a movie across a broader palette, right? That's just a, uh, that's
1: just a, a a taster of what your process is. Sure, I'm a facilitator for those who have something to say, and I'm trying to help them do that acutely to their own sensibilities and their own objectives. I'm not unaware of the realities of every aspect of our business. Look, I, I work on on some you know blockbuster type action movies and, and whatnot. I'm well aware that we want as many butts in those seats as possible. Then we have to make it as awesome as possible for that experience, even if it's not my personal favorite work that I've done. It's not about me, so yeah. it's good to get outside of yourself and really apply your talent, your skill to a vision that doesn't necessarily begin with your own. Because I have plenty of those as well. And then in in music, you know, I obviously know the world of pop music or what is considered you know, hitting more in the mainstream and, you know, many genres, there's like what 200 genres of rock music now. So I don't know, but, but, you know, I know, you know, I listen to a lot of music when when I can and I interface with so many musicians who are, you know, extremely viable that um, I think I have a pretty good sensibility for, you know, at least my, my taste. And I know that I'm not exactly the person who wants to be one of 10 in a room, Writing a super pop song, but I would be down to do it one on one, yeah, two on one, or something like that. You know, just a, a one, two, or three people total. But I, I don't want to be running around, you know, throwing a beat over here at this person and being one of ten or twelve songwriters on a song. It's, it's just I know that people make a ton of money doing, this, but it's <laughs> yeah, not right. Yeah, it's just not me, man. Yeah. you know, I really am into the understanding of my collaborators yeah. and seeing you know, how I can best express what they wish to objective is. And, and also to create music that inspires artists, you know, and that's super fun when I'm working with artists, we know, you know, rockers or whatever we know who've been around a while. It's fun to create something that can inspire a person who could be jaded but to make them feel like they're 17 again. Yeah. You know, just to get excited. Yeah. And we we have to preserve that within ourselves throughout our life until we're dead. So, to me it's it's my job to sort of tend to the garden, you know. If you don't, yeah. then yeah. you have weeds. So <laughs> and and then you're hating your own life. So, you know, I try and stay out in front of it and and create and you know, when you do a a fair number of things in your life, you're going to have problems. You're going to have issues and, and you're going to have people who dislike you or dislike what you do, you know? So to sort of counter that, I just create more, you know? So you say what you will, you know, I mean, I'm just going to keep creating and I'm going to try and challenge myself to be more inventive and, and to sort of replenish the palette of my, sound or my ideas, you know, I know that I need to continually read literature and, and experience other art forms to inform my own sort of the you know, the toolkit, if you will, yeah. or my my own vocabulary. So, yeah, I feel like I'm a little bit at a loss this morning. It was a very late night, and now I'm drinking a bucket of coffee <laughs> well, I'm fascinated
0: by your relationship with your work, and I think that was very well expressed because i I think I think that's one of the keys. I think that philosophy that you have is one of the keys to your immense the immensely prolific nature of your work over the last over the last twenty years. I was thinking back knowing that we're going to have this conversation. I was trying to remember. Because, you know, I spent 30 years as a a movie journalist. I was trying to think, when was the first time I was aware of your credit on a film? And two things dropped into my head. And one is the Stallone version of Get Carter. And the other is that Steven Seagal flick with the great title Half Past Dead. Right?
1: Yeah? You know, first off, those are two directors that I love with my... My heart and soul. So, Stephen K. get Carter. Yeah. We had done a movie a couple of years before then, a bebop movie called The Last Time I Committed Suicide. Keanu Reeves is in it. Uh, right on.
0: I've seen that film. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right yeah, on. So, that movie might have made me, might have convinced me that this is a career opportunity or option in a way for myself, you know, because Blue Note. Release this. And that was interesting. Funny thing is, my band had just went on like the Warp Tour as that movie, as that score was released or whatever. And I got back from the Warp Tour and a friend of mine called a uh, director and wanted to hire me on this rock and roll movie. But the studio thought I was a jazz guy and they wanted a rock guy. <laughs> it's like, wait, <laughs> I just got off this shitty Warp Tour baking like a piece of bacon on a skillet out there in a uh, hot sun for ever i'm a rocker but anyway that that everything worked out and and then stephen Kay, you know he he was cool enough to bring me with him on his journey when he had that opportunity because at the time that was a huge opportunity for me i think the movie is like a 50 million dollar movie and that's around the year 1999 2000 right yeah 2000 So, so while it it Did not perform at the box office. I did enjoy working on that film. Music was cool, and then to to work with Roy Budd's theme was oh man!
0: It's I mean that's what exactly one of the things I was going to ask you. I mean, you've got this incredible immortal piece of music, yeah. And just to get the because I really I really loved straight up, mate. I really love the I love that song in its original form, but I really love. The version that's in the two thousand Get Carter, and if you could have seen my iPod back then, what you would have seen is I listened to to the to the Stallone iteration of that solidly for about six months after seeing the movie. I fucking loved it, you know. To I me, mean? I think you did a great job with it. Whoa, you're just frozen there, mate.
1: Okay, I'm back. Oh, I, you're uh, back. I don't hey? know what's
0: yeah. You're okay. Back.
1: Yes, I, I lost you after iPod.
0: Oh, yeah. So I just had my my iPod in, like, I really loved what you did with, with that theme. It's a piece of music that I love. But I love that. I love the version that's in that movie. Just Thank as you. much as I love the version from, and the, the original is a great favorite of mine.
1: Oh, yeah. A very dear friend of mine, Wolfgang Mathis, who has left the United States, but became a citizen after he left the United <laughs> States, is He's a fun, fun character, like a brother to me. But even though he now re- lives on a remote island, we still work together daily. But anyway, he's he's, he's always been like a partner and helping me develop sounds like modular synth sounds we'd work on together and mixing and stuff. And when that came up, I was listening to the Roy Budd version of the theme. And of course, we wanted to state that theme throughout the movie. And uh, Wolfie had suggested the Marxophone for the melody. And I'm like, well, that's, that's a pretty obscure instrument. And, and we checked it out, you know, and obviously in its natural form, it wouldn't work diatonically to play the theme. So we sampled it and then I was able to play it on the keyboard, but it sounded so cool and it was fun to cut the the title sequence. We played it as a full band, which was fun. Yeah, I still remember that, but I really appreciate Stephen Kay, just his support throughout the years. We're still good friends. We've worked on a number of things together. And then Half Past Dead, okay, the the movie is what it is. Right. We we know what it is. But, you know, going into a film like that, I asked myself, I'm like, well, I'm, you know, what can I do to elevate this? And at the time, the director, Don Michael Paul, who, again, somebody I, I really... Adore as a human being, he's awesome. And he was great to work with. I think at the time he was into these bands like P.O.D., Love Metallica and whatever. And he just wanted me to kind of bring that attitude to in maybe Crystal Method or something, bring a little bit of that into the movie. And it was super fun. And again, it was uh, it was a different era of filmmaking, but it was it was really uh, a great learning experience to work with him because He'd been in the business a long time. He had he had been still taking lashings for directing Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. Yeah, Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, but, that's another film that I like, mate. Do you know, yeah. just couldn't be a nicer person ever. And you know, I learned a lot from him about how Stephen Kay too, just how people conduct themselves with with grace when they're they're really aspiring to something that's fantastic, but also acting as a true collaborator with the people around them. So they would never tell me what to do. They would show me things they like. They would encourage me to experiment. And for that, I'm grateful. I mean, Get Carter is a a very weird mixed bag of music in the score. And the, the thing the aspect of that that is funny is there I was getting some direction from Steven, and Steven really, you know, he he was hoping, you know, his, his idea was more like Moby and stuff like Moby for the music, yeah. the Go music on. of the film. But Stallone, he wanted rhythm, he wanted brass. So Steven would give me his thoughts or ideas, input in his own voice. And then he would give me Stallone's and Stallone's voice. So (laughs) So, so he'd be like, well, Ty, I really like, you know, this sort of, I like this beat and I like how it's very ethereal here and blah, blah, blah. He says, but Sly said, yeah, I need like a big brass theme here and blah, blah, blah. And it was, it was pretty awesome. (laughs) Steven does an impeccable impression of Stallone, but I thought it was cool. And it was such a big thrill to work on a Sylvester Stallone movie at that point in my life. I was like, holy hell who's look at this person on my screen you know yeah so it was interesting to uh, actually begin growing used to working on you know obviously higher budget films where the stars were legendary or are very you know very well known so but that was one of the first
0: yeah i mean you're only at that point i think about Maybe, what, four years away from stamping the accelerator on your career and then suddenly you get into... But certainly the way it looked to me from the outside is because I was aware of your name from that point onwards, mainly because I love... I, 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 the reason I knew, I knew it was you on Half Past Dead was because I loved the, the Get Carter soundtrack so much, right? And l- like what I've been saying before is I was always listening to, to that Get Carter soundtrack. And so I always noticed your name after that. And I saw it pop up in funny places, like you did that TV movie, right? Gone But Not Forgotten. That was you, yeah?
1: Yeah. Now yeah. that you mention it, I haven't thought of it probably. It is more like Forgotten and Gone, I think. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. Now, now, now that you mention it, yeah, I did. Yeah. So I'm trying to remember it. Yeah, and the title is with me, of course. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I mean, I, it's it's interesting if you could... If you could know then what you what you would know five years later, like my journey has been, it's been a roller coaster. And the G-forces have been really intense at times, you know? But yeah, you know, I had no idea like where my career would wind up. I, after I did Get Carter, I did some little things. And then I, I got onto this movie, What's the Worst That Could Happen? Yeah. And it was a rescore. And oh, that's already,
0: interesting.
1: They are already dubbing the movie. So they, they said, okay, you're going to fail. We're going to probably have to keep some of the music that we have, but we need you to, to write, record, and deliver 36 minutes of score inside of six days. And, you know, it was not so easy back then. There are so many tools at your disposal now to make a composer's life easier. I mean, obviously, it makes, it makes the expectation of what we do Uh, grow that much more but at the time you know you had to do still so much practical recording you know samplers were not amazing yet at that time we're working like giga studios and stuff so that was not a very quick way of working but after what's the worst that could happen, live down to its name because <laughs> the worst you just, happened. <laughs> you just don't want to name your movie that. Even though I had fun with it after, in retrospect, you know, once I had was able to go to sleep, I think Wolfie and I ate, what was it? It was like espresso, chocolate covered espresso beans nonstop yeah. for six well, days. I-, <laughs> I don't think I slept the, the entire six days. So it was a fever dream, at least midway through to the end. But, you know, my career just took another deep valley after that and you know I, I know what it's like to starve and to have to gut it out you know that's been my whole life so uh, i dug in and and music supervisor g mark roswell who's a dear friend now brought me onto this movie that, that mario van Peebles was uh, starring in playing his father badass yeah Now, mind you, that was seriously low budget, but I had so much fun working on that movie with Mario and that music and just the subject matter was cool. All the, you know, the, the emotions surrounding that were all really positive and I really enjoyed it. And, and, you know, Mario is a pretty demanding person, you know, and he's like, you know, he wants things quick when he has an idea. But uh, G Mark liked the way I worked with him, and he had then gotten the job to be the music supervisor on *Dawn of the Dead*, and he mentioned it to me. He said, "I think you could be—you'd be great for this." I'm like, "How am I going to get that job? Like, I have no <laughs> repertoire of like orchestral, like creeped-out music." Yeah, you know. And so, you know, it was—it was good of him to to float me the script. He asked me to just write a couple pieces of music. He said, just put those in your pocket for when, when I get you in the room with them. And that was months in advance. And so, again, I had no repertoire that would really sell me as a, a composer of dark, horror, horrific music or anything of that sort at the time. So I put together like a CD of avant-garde music. And then, you know, just some, some things that are now pretty mainstream, like Penderecki talk, yeah. you know, some Daniel Lanois stuff, some really weird stuff too. And I figured, okay, if I can have a good conversation with the director and at least point to this and he can see in the other aspects of my body of work that I'm capable of doing this, I have a shot maybe. Yeah. But I knew that I had then found out they were meeting with like 12 composers or something. I'm like, it's not happening. So sure enough, it looked like they were hiring someone else. And I'm like, okay, I guess I didn't get the job. And then I, I, I went and saw Marcus Misspell's Texas State Chainsaw Massacre. And I saw the Dawn of the Dead trailer. And I'm like, damn, I wish I was doing <laughs> that movie. So sure enough, like a month later, a G-Mark calls me and he says, look, I think this could be your movie. And I'm like, how so? He says, well, you know, it didn't necessarily work out with the previous person they were going to hire. And the director keeps bringing your name up when they bring up music. So they want to talk to you again. I'm like, okay, great. And it turned out that the producer, Mark Gaber, asked me, he's like, hey, you you gave us CDs when you came in for that meeting. What was the first piece of music on that? I said, oh, it was something I wrote, you know, G. Mark asked me to write a couple sketches. <laughs> he says, well, I'll tell you what. He said, I started my car one day, and my kids were in the back, and that music came on, and they were scared to death. <laughs> 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 he said, and then they wanted to hear it yeah. every time we got in the car because it was so... <laughs> So he said, I'll tell you what. He says, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work with you on this. So just, you got to let us know if you need any help or anything, but you know, we want to work with you on this. And I, and so it's because of G Mark Roswell that I got that break. So that quarter, cause I didn't have much time to do Dawn of the dead first quarter of 2004, that came out number one movie you got served, which I had just done right before Dawn of the dead, number yeah. one movie. So I had two number ones in the first quarter of 2004 then crickets i had i couldn't get a meeting for five months and so it was either lose my house or do the next job that i could find and that was a mini series with lou diamond phillips and brooke shields and and it's like you know what i gotta pay the rent you know yeah and um and nothing against it but it was like a huge drop from these (laughs) other films but you know, I, I'm a humble person when it comes down to it. I know what it's like to to have a day of glory and then not have enough money to eat the next day. So it's, yeah. you know, it's not a foreign concept to me. So I, you know, I'll do the work, you know. I've yeah. painted houses, I've done whatever I've had to do to string it all together, you know, because this is a very difficult career to gain any consistent traction with. It takes a long time, I think, to establish that.
0: Tyler, what point did you feel did did you get to the point where that Did you turn around one day and you notice, hey, man, I've had the traction for a number of years now and I'm in a good spot and now my career is self-sustaining. How long did it take you to get to the point where that's how you felt about it? (laughs) Or do you never feel about it that way? I
1: don't feel that way at all. (laughs) You know, the thing is, I just, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just because I really refuse to expose myself too much to say social media or what the public is saying about me. And I hope, you know, obviously I appreciate if people are supportive of what I do or they like what I do, you know, I know that's not unanimous as it is with anyone who puts anything out into the world. You're always going to have critics and I really, you know, I don't get high (coughs) off of adulation, so I'm not seeking that out. So every day of my life, I have to prove something to myself. You know, I know when I have work, I'm fortunate and I never believe that I have work eternally. So it means a lot to me to prove to myself that I deserve the opportunity, whatever it is. And that could simply be, you know, creating music for a director's pitch to even get a project made. Even, you know, sometimes I'll work with a director and then they're going into their next movie and, you know, we may help with a pitch, you know, so maybe they'll do a proof of concept shot and here, you know, do music and sound design and record, you know, ADR and Walla, whatever it's going to take to help them sell that idea. So even to be on that working for free is a privilege and it's an opportunity. And so I take it all very seriously. You know, I don't just assume that you know, I can focus or decide not to focus, you know, and I don't buy into the idea that, you know, I'm great or everyone thinks that I'll just, I don't think I could ever imagine that, you know, I'm too neurotic. I imagine to, to accept something like that. If anything, it would make me nervous. (laughs) That's why I really don't like, you know, I'm not one to seek out, you know, Positive comments. As a matter of fact, like doing this Dark Knight Step Metal soundtrack album, I've been working daily with Matt Keller from DC Comics, yeah, who I love. Yeah, he's Great a good dude. Hell yeah. And so, of course, they're on top of everything that's happening with the fan base and all that. And he knows me. He's like, he knows I don't go on the internet unless I'm you know, buying an instrument or something, yeah. you know? So he, he's like, Tyler, you've got to see some of these comments. They're amazing. And it makes me feel good to know that it's positive. And I'm like, Matt, I I, I can't. So he'll like take screen shots <laughs> of stuff and send it to me. I'm like, just stop, don't. Just do it. If it's generally good, great, you know? But like, I need to write great music today and I can't be distracted yeah. by by thinking that I've already done it. So
0: I think that, that right there, that inbuilt, hard baked humility that you've got, which you're, you're not bullshitting, you actually believe in and is a fundamental part of you. That's what has made you so successful, so prolific. And that's what's opened the door to what this wealth of creation that you've had. You know, I mean, I think the thing is being derailed by praise and by being high, you know, on, on on the effect that you can have on other people in the creative space, that wrecks careers, yeah?
1: Yeah. No, I'm not saying don't celebrate. Yeah, right on. I get I that. I mean, you write a great song with somebody and you 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 finish the mix up in the studio and it sounds incredible. Yes, that's, that's what being high is right yeah. there. Right on. You know, or if you're really proud of a collaboration on a movie or something and you're at the premiere, just having a quiet moment not one where people are looking at you but just a quiet moment with some some of your close family or friends is really awesome you know i mean those yeah. like there's so many moments that i celebrate in this studio with artists that no one in the world will ever know about and ever see yeah. <laughs> and you know it's part of my mo you know this is a safe place for for collaborators creators to be because it's not going to be exploited unless they choose to post something you know, so yeah. I prefer just to live my life, you know, in here and keep keep working hard to to improve as an artist. So and also try and elevate, you know, every situation that I'm involved in. I want to be a source of positive energy, as opposed mm-hmm. to, man, we've got to try and get some music out of this guy, or have you heard yeah. from the composer like, lately? <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to be that person. You know, I want to try and really help bring a sense of confidence and and positivity to the process, regardless of what the project is. Mate, so,
0: um, that, that's that's my big hard agree moment right there, which is, we've talked about this before, but positivity is everything. And, and keeping those things, it's being very clear about that, and very clear about the effect that you have on your fellow human beings, and the energy that you bring into a room, uh, It is such a key thing. And I think many people that, that I've witnessed or observed over the years have kind of squandered their talent by just, Focusing on the wrong things and and not thinking positively enough, or being you know derailed by negativity, can come at you in a, in a thousand different ways. You've got to hold true to yourself. I think you clearly understand yourself, and I think you're very humble about your gifts and and you radiate positivity and and that's how you get things done. and I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass mate I'm just saying this is an observation from you know having from having talked to you and I think when you're a creator that's everything because unless you hove true to that you can badly fuck up what you're trying to do
1: yeah and everyone all of us are capable of yeah. not being of focused as we should at times and you know, hopefully, you realize it, and you can sort of course correct before a disaster strikes. But one thing I would say to anyone who's who's watching or listening to this conversation, if you are an entrepreneur or a creator, there's a book by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art, and you can read it in a day. It's it's a fun read, but it's really a great mental tune-up for anyone who's creating. Anyone who's inventive, it's really about how to approach your work and, and how to, keep, it's almost like martial arts in a way. It's about yeah. how to use your energy, your power for your, to your advantage instead of your disadvantage. Because most of us do create reasons why we cannot approach or accomplish a lot of what we dream about. And of course, you're never going to knock off everything on that list, whatever it is. You know, even if you see somebody that looks like they have it made, Elon Musk or you know whoever it is, they're still not going to accomplish everything they want or experience everything they want in life because it's not all based on the metric of money or whatnot. You know, we all have have different things that are important to us, but I really think that it's it's important to ask yourself why am I not progressing here? What have I done to improve my self as a human this week what have i done to improve my vocabulary as an artist whether you paint or you write music or photography whatever it is you know it just just having your your mindset is such that you need to expand and work it out regularly instead of just the wash rinse repeat cycle that we can get into in life when We're so busy and we have tons of responsibility. And especially if you have family and children and whatnot, you know, it's kind of a, that's kind of like a, you're in survival mode, (laughs) but but you still have to reserve some space for that to occur in your life in order for you to move on. I don't know if it's always forward, but you need to move on. And I think that that's, what's really important to be available as as an effective artist.
0: I, I think that's very well said. And I think that is a fucking great recommendation, mate. So that's Stephen Pressfield, the art, the war of art.
1: Yeah. Yes, he wrote The Legend of Bagger Vance, he wrote Gates of Fire. Yeah. Right. On. This is a it's a great read that I think anybody can relate to because it's it's written in such a, a I don't know, it's a relatable way. It, it, he's not preaching to you. It's not the secret. It's not somebody telling you how to make a million dollars. It's really uh, about being an artist and approaching it as effectively as you can so that you can get the maximum out of your productivity and your appreciation for your life. Because, you know, no matter what, we all have shit that's going to happen, has happened. Some things seem like you're you're drowning in quicksand and there's no way out. But if you place your focus in a healthy, healthy way, you can find your way through your worst of times and invent your next better time so a lot of that capacity is is within us you know and i know what i'm saying isn't unilateral for everybody in the planet some people have occurrences in their life that are so devastating it's difficult to move past but if you if you have your your health you know there's a lot that you can do on any day of your life and it's important to be humble about that too you know
0: so true brother hard degree and well said I, I I love that and Tyler before we close out, can I just ask you about just go real quick through a few of your career highlights what out of your time with out, out of out of the movies that you made so let's go through a few people so James Gunn your collaborations with james gunn which is that which is the uh, the 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 piece of work you've done with him that you're fondest of or or look back on with the most you know you're mo- the most pleased with do you look at it in that
1: way? No, because once you, no matter what, these experiences are unique unto themselves. And, yeah. And the, you know, the love and the, the energy that goes into every every project is a massive amount. I mean, yeah, that's why people who work together in the recording studio fall in love all the time because yeah, yeah. through the experience, you know, something you didn't necessarily know you were capable of emerges and you love that feeling and you love that person for showing you that within yourself yeah so i i think that that's an important thing to recognize in all of this work because we don't necessarily continue working with the same people forever in our lives but of, of we course. have to be very appreciative of every opportunity and proud of the work that we we did together. So James and I did like four movies and a million shorts that I did for him. But then, you know, I would say my work with him, Guardians 2 is, is I think, a really beautiful, fun school. Better to listen to it just on the soundtrack album, I would say. You can actually really hear the attention to detail in the music there that is, you know, you can tell that there's there's a lot of care that that went into that music. I love that. I love everything I did with Zack Snyder. Watchmen was great, but I mean, Dawn of the Dead was so cool because it happened so fast. I really had no time to think about it. Yeah. All I knew is I was starting off on thin ice. It's just like one mistake and you're out because I was not a proven commodity at the time. But they didn't treat me that way. I just knew that the politics of it were such. But what happened on that movie, Zack Snyder and his editor, the producer, and G. Mark Roswell, music supervisor, and my music editor, all would come to my studio, which was a converted garage at the time, once a week to listen to the music. And I think I was writing for six or seven weeks before we recorded. And all they did was give me encouragement. There was not one change note on that score. So I'm pretty certain the score totaled 69 minutes and 59 seconds. I'm pretty sure we just couldn't hold that note for one extra <laughs> next seven minutes. But it was my first very large-scale orchestral recording, which we did at Fox and Eric Newman, who's a producer on the movie of the Newman Family. It was his first time being at the Alfred Newman scoring stage. Yeah. Wow. Um, so it was it was fun on a number of levels. It was, of course, Zach's first real movie it was his first experience with an orchestra and it's all really positive stuff like you know when you work with him he's a cheerleader it's like yeah it's more like you're in a game of football you know it's like yeah let's do this you know so it's fun and working with chad stahelski from the john wick series is similar Chad, <sighs> yeah, is, man. he is a real life badass but a great guy and he knows his stuff like you know he's he commands such respect from everyone around him because, you know, the guy is a weapons expert. He's a martial artist. He's done everything there is to do in the field of stunts. He's been one of the the biggest people in that, that area for, you know, 25, 30 years. So the stunt people have a real sense of camaraderie and team when they work. Yeah. Everyone knows who the boss is or the general is, but they have this way of creating a, camaraderie that you belong to something and that it requires all of our focus to succeed, you know, that is really empowering for everybody who's contributing, you know? And so when it does get intense, like super intense toward the end of a project, you know, you still have that extra, that extra energy left over because you know, that this person is just really doing everything they can to make the greatest thing they can. They appreciate your unique, presence and talent and, and, and they respect you, you know? And so when you, when you feel that way as a commissioned artist, you're willing to, you know, run through walls for, for someone, you know, I mean, we're all so messed up anyway, you know, with our self esteem and whatnot. Yeah. That you know, we're looking for that opportunity. I want to run through a wall. I just, who's who am I going to do it for? It's it's fun, it's it's almost like smashing a guitar on stage, you know. But it is it's great to work with people like that. So I I really appreciate that. David Leach has been a wonderful director to work with too. And he co directed the first John Wick, and then he and I went on and did several moves together. I mean, there's so many people that I've worked with that are absolutely like masterful at their craft or they are and they don't realize it and they're super humble
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> or just the musicians that I've experienced in, in this journey. I mean, some of the greatest musicians in the world have played on music that I've written and it makes me want to be better. I need to create as I move forward, something worthy of them to play, you know, cause I, I got a lot of side eyes at, at early on, you know, people look at the score. There's a bunch of goose eggs on there. Cause I, was probably, you know, playing guitar on something and and all I wanted was like, you know, some held chords from the orchestra and they're like sleeping and reading while they're playing this stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So I learned to really, you know, write, write when the movie calls for it, write some music for them to have fun playing. And that's just a thrill to see it come to life when the music is challenging and still fun and beautiful and you're in a room with the best players in the world. Certainly every time I've been at Abbey Road, it's been that. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah.
0: Just an amazing place, Abbey Road, isn't it?
1: It is. It's cool, man. And every experience I've had theres there's been a, some kind of special occurrence or, you know, happening. People I love are always working with me on on my scores. Like Tim Williams has been a great collaborator of mine since forever ago. We met at the end of our driveways when I... He moved next door to me, I don't know, 20 years ago or something. And once I learned about him, we just became friends. And then, you know, his first real conducting gig was 300. So he's brilliant. He's he's a brilliant conductor. Obviously, an excellent orchestrator, but he's an excellent composer. And so he's just been a great friend and collaborator. And that's, uh, that's meant a lot to me. And I've learned a lot working with Tim as well, you know, cause our backgrounds are so completely different, but you know, I, there are many people in my life like that who have really helped in a healthy way, push me to be better in every aspect of, of what I'm trying to accomplish. And it's not all just music based. It's some, yeah. it's relating to people and how, how we work together and how does it feel good for everybody to be part of this thing? You know, and I try and protect everybody from some of the, the, the pressure that comes from the top. Yeah, of course, <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I try not to show sometimes that there's, there's a foot on my throat. But yeah. we, we, all, we all feel that, you know what I mean? When, when, when a studio is making a $200 million movie, everybody's career is on the line. Of course, yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's just trying to make the best thing. they. So I completely understand and appreciate it. But, you know, Tim has been a, a warrior through those battles as his Wolfgang and, yeah. and my associates here in the studio are wonderful. So, again, you know, I mean, I'm surrounded by great people every day. You know, I just need to turn my focus, you know, for, for a good portion of my day to, to create and to see what, what kind of new ideas I can start to call in my, in my vocabulary.
0: I, I think what you and your your great, great your great co-, co you know co-workers and collaborators have done on a number of occasions that I've particularly noticed. As as somebody who sat in a lot of preview rooms over 30 years and watched a ton of different movies, I think what's notable about some of your action movies that you've scored is that I've noticed some multiple times with Flix have your score attacks, is that by the end of the film, You have battle-hardened and quite cynical journalists. I'm not a cynical journalist, but I know a lot of cynical journalists are coming down and humming the music as they leave. You know, they've they've literally just finished singing it. And I I was really struck by that with your 300 soundtrack. People just had the music in their head by the time they were walking out. It's it's also the case, if you ever see people reenacting scenes from the John Wick movies, they are invariably singing your music while they do it. Yeah, and it's just gone straight into the cortex and stayed there. Instead of the usual bang, wow, sound effect. They're not doing sound effects. They're doing the music looks, which I I, I think that's such a powerful thing and I think is such a testament to to what you and and your collaborators have created.
1: Well, yeah, and, you know, again, I have inspired people around me who are not – I mean, generally no one has this interest of – climbing the ladder of Hollywood as much as they do being part of something that feels great and it's creatively challenging. So on 300, of course, Wolfie was working with me on developing sounds. And like Greg Ellis was the the main percussionist. We worked with several, which Greg was part of all the ensembles and whatnot. But it was interesting. He taught me a considerable amount about ethnic percussion, probably to the degree where I'm sure I could probably teach a class on it at this point, but... (laughs) The funny thing about that movie is I would I would see how sounds combined could make a new sounding drum, you know? So whether I was combining a Rick and a Merdingham or whatever it was, that was one thing I wanted to do with 300. And I know that people have tried to hire my people and get them to do what they did on 300, but Greg doesn't even know what instruments were combined to make the sounds, you know? Yeah. I hand edited all that stuff to just try and create a slightly different sound in the percussion. And then I was working on a record with Azam Ali during the the time 300 came up. So I thought, you know, of course I want Azam to sing on it. And because we were spending so much time together since before 300 and then, you know, 300, we developed the pitch for it for over a year. So I was working on an animatic, which I had Scott Glenn come in the studio to do a narration that's an overview of the story. And, you know, Zach had me writing music for puppets and drawings and everything that was required to present the movie in the way that he wanted to. So while we were developing that, I enlisted uh, Azam to, to sing on the score. But when we got into the actual score, I had written some pieces of music and I wanted her to sit with them. And really create her part so that it was more than just, you know, the film scoring vocalization that you might hear in a standard score. I wanted it to be something deeper than that and more emotional than that. And I wanted her to be able to connect on a deeper emotional level than doing a session for me, you know, so that was the thinking behind that you know? So I do try and have that connection with collaborators on every movie. To me, I find it to be empowering. I think that it makes the music feel more that it was born with a purpose other than to be a cue in a movie. Yeah, And that's what I'm aspiring to. It's not always possible, but when the opportunity presents itself, you know, it's my, I think it's, it's my duty to, to see it and to seize on that. And, you know, like, Guardians of the Galaxy, when we recorded, we recorded the first score, it was pretty chaotic, the first one. But I thought, you know, my daughter is an excellent pianist, you know, she was 12 at the time. And so she, she came in after we recorded the orchestra at 12 and she did all the piano for the first Guardians in a studio, not mine. But uh, then when she was 15, I hired her to be the pianist at Abbey Road with the orchestra. Amazing. Talk about pressure, man! With ninety-two of the greatest players in the world. world, yeah, in real time, that was awesome. And I was thinking to myself, "Man, she's she's like got some real moxie to be able to do this." <laughs> and then I thought, "Why didn't? Why haven't I put myself in the orchestra? Like, why would? I, why have I never done that? It's usually, because I'm in the booth, you know, just trying yeah. to make sure everything's everything's going the way we wanted to. But I thought that was that was a fun moment, you know, to to see that happen. And of course, Tim conducted and Tim was incredible. Like we've had just so many, so many awesome experiences because of the way he handles himself with an orchestra and our trust and communication and one another has made it fun, you know? And so there's something deeper than just what people see in the billing block. It's like this whole thing that happens in the making of this um, is really special to me. And like Gustavo Borner is a great friend of mine who engineers and, mix as many of my scores and Robert Carranza, who's like my brother who makes 300, you know? So when you look back, it's like, we had that shared experience that was awesome. You know, we don't, you know, I don't walk around giving my resume to people, but I know I have all these incredible moments with people that have really just made my life that much better, you know? So that's what I'm looking for at this point. You know, I, I don't really care so much what people think as much as I want to do something great. I I want it to be attached to or associated with people who are elevated through the process as well. And, you know, it's more, it's more about that. I know it sounds a little, you know, hippie granola or hippie granola or whatever. But (laughs) but, you know, for me, that's really important, you know, because I spend my whole life in my studio. I've missed so many Saturdays at the museum with my kids when they were little. You know, now I'm trying to. At least uh, atone for it a little bit by, you know, spending time with them working on their music, which I love and and also with my friends and and the people who work around me, you know, work with me. I just want to make our experience together pleasant because we're we're dedicating a tremendous amount of our lives to what we do daily, you know. Yeah, it's well, not a nine to five, five round here.
0: No, you you have not got a nine to five gig, and a lot of what you're saying reminds me of a, a quote that is always wrongly attributed to Winston Churchill. Uh, And this quote, he does actually use this quote, he writes it in one of his books, but what he's actually saying in the book, if you actually read the pages on, is he saying, I don't believe in this, I think it's a load of horseshit. I do, however, believe in it. And the quote has lived on attributed to him as if he believed it. He didn't believe it at all. But it's you build your own universe around you as you go. Yeah. And you'll often, if you look that phrase up, you'll see pictures of Churchill with, with it, that phrase underneath him. You build your own universe around you as you go. But I think that the beauty of your career is that it is exactly what you and your collaborators and your extended universe of musicians have done. And I think there's a tremendous purity to that. And, and I think... That Because you are so dedicated to, to staying true to your creation, your vision, you're doing it for the right reason, you're not trying to make a quick book. I think that's why the soundtracks that you've composed, the music you've produced sounds different and it affects people on an elemental level. They don't necessarily know if they're not musicians, they don't know why they're responding to it, but they know that they do. Right, and I think that's why. And I think I think it's there in your work, and and it, it leaps out of your work and jumps into your subconscious. Everything you've just talked about for the past hour, I think it's all there, mate.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely put my soul into it for sure. You know, good or bad. You yeah. Know? Sometimes, sometimes a, a concept or an experiment does not succeed the way I envision it to, and you know, the sands of the hourglass run out so you know there is always that pencils down moment you know so yeah, of uh, we try you know so you know i try to to experiment uh, but at the same time you know i have a job to do but i'm finding that place where i have a soulful connection to the task or the material or the people i'm working with something that will give me you know that that will help me to access that part of me that is more than doing what i'm told to do you know more yeah. than the tailor who is stitching a button back on a suit
0: right on that is a hard grin and an amen I, I i love it mate tyler thanks so much for giving up the last hour of what i know is a very busy day for you right at the beginning of the day just as you're drinking your coffee brother
1: yeah, my brain will wake up soon. My hours have been flipped around, so sorry if I'm a little bit, uh, you know, clumsy with my words this morning. But well, evening for you, I guess. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm psyched about just even today. There's so much cool stuff already in front of me. Uh, a lot to do, but uh, really good.
0: You know, that, that is good. brilliant. I, and, I, and you, yeah, you've been great, very clear, very succinct, and very honest, which which I which I appreciate and. Thanks so much for joining me, brother. It's been great. I've enjoyed it.
1: You too. Take Take care.
0: Take care, brother. All the best. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Hard Agree. This episode was edited by John Horsley and Kenrick Regan, and our theme music, Golden, was written and performed for this show by Liverpool's finest band, Denio. Hard Agree is a production of The Spoilerverse and myself, Andrew Sumner.